Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, today is Palm Sunday. There are a couple of clues around the church that might have given that away. And again, a special thank you to Darlene, to Pete, and to, I'm not going to call you Little Pete, Pete, so Pete Burrell as well for helping out, uh, making that possible. So it looks beautiful and reminds us of the things that happen in history and that we're going to reflect on together today in Scripture. Again, Palm Sunday celebrates that moment when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, that moment that kicked off the events of the next seven days, which culminate in his death and his resurrection from the dead, which we celebrate next Sunday on Easter. And what we're going to see again today in the account of the triumphal entry is the same thing we saw in our text from last week. That there's a question that comes to the minds of everybody who engages with Jesus Christ. It came to the minds of those who engaged with Jesus when he was alive on the earth. And it still comes to the minds of people who engage with the truth of Jesus as it's proclaimed today in our culture. The question is this, who is Jesus? And in fact, many people have blinding assumptions, these presuppositions about who Jesus is, and sometimes it obscures the truth that's evident. This is the truth that perhaps is even right in front of them, keeping them from the truth. And so we need to understand this and be able to engage well in it. Again, there could be sometimes a difference between our assumptions and the reality. And certainly, even as Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, we see the same thing at play among these first century Jewish people in his day. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Mark's account of the triumphal entry. You'll find it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, There are pew Bibles in front of you, hopefully. Uh, And then if you don't have a Bible in front of you, we will have it up on the screen as well. But here's what we read in Mark 11, starting in verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I'm going to zero in on a couple things here, but perhaps the unsung miracle that we see here is this, that as the disciples went and, and, and 
started untying the donkey and people were like, what on earth are you doing? They said, well, the Lord needs it. And they just let him go. I'm sorry, that's, if somebody came and stole my lawnmower and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. I probably wouldn't say, okay. So I'm sorry, that caught me funny this morning as I'm reading it. I'm like, man, Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. I don't know that I would have been so faithful to let it go. But that's really not what we focus on when we're thinking about the triumphal entry and Palm Sunday. There are so many more significant things at play. And here's just a couple of them. Here's here's overall what we see in this passage. We see Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And if you are familiar with the Gospels leading up to this point, we know that this is the goal that Jesus had set for himself. He knew he was going to end up in Jerusalem, and he knew the way things were going to go when he got there. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. That means he wasn't going to be detoured. He wasn't going to be delayed. He wasn't going to be stopped. Despite the fact that he knew exactly what he was going to face when he got there, he was determined, he was committed, that's where he was going to go. On at least three occasions prior to this day, Jesus announced to his disciples exactly what would take place when he got there. That he would be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. That he would be turned over to the Romans. That he would be put to death. And that three days later, he would rise again from the dead. On three different occasions, at least, he informed his disciples that this was going to happen. And despite the fact that he knew that was what was waiting for him, his face was still set toward Jerusalem. For he knew the reason that he had come to this earth. He knew his purpose that was before him, and nothing was going to detour him from this And so here we have finally that moment where Jesus has reached the finish line in his travelings over the last three plus years. Here he's arriving in Jerusalem for perhaps the last time, or definitely the last time at this stage in life. And so we see him coming, and I think the, the interesting thing is the reactions we see from everybody all around, right? We see, and in that in both the way in which they laid palm branches and their cloaks down before him, in the the acclamations they made, these exclamations of who he was and these, these, these quotes of scripture from the Old Testament that promised things, we can see a whole lot about what their view of Jesus was. And yet the reality is, where were these crowds in the following days? Some have suggested that perhaps some of the same crowd who are calling these things before Jesus might even have been among those who were saying crucify him as he was standing trial before Pontius Pilate. Certainly others had fled after the events of Jesus. We don't see these large crowds that met him in Jerusalem just a few short days later. What on earth happened? And again, how does that question, who is Jesus, play large and their responses before and after the events of the coming days. So there's a couple things I want to draw our attention to. We're going to be in Scripture a lot today. If you brought your Bible, you did so on a good day today. For those of you who really don't want to try to keep up with me in your Scripture passages, I promise they will be up on your screen in front of you. But I want to paint a picture, and let's, let's take a look at just some significant elements here from our text that... Here's here's three things I want to highlight. The first is this, 
that Jesus' selection of his transportation to Jerusalem, this donkey, this colt, the foal of a donkey, was not an arbitrary decision. In fact, it was, and Jesus knew this, it was filled with messianic, with prophetic significance. So let's take a look at just two cases of this. The first, we find all the way back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. And here is a prophecy that is made to Judah, but about a descendant that will come in the line of Judah. And if you look through Jesus's genealogy, you know that he is one who comes in the line of Judah. But here's what it says, Genesis 49, 10 and 11. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he who to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So pause for a second. Do you know how early this is all the way back in Genesis? We're talking before the time of, of, of Moses. We're talking before the time of the kings. We're talking thousands of years before the time of Jesus. And there's this promise that there's one who's going to come in the line of Judah who will be the one to rule, who will have the scepter and the staff, the one uh, who will rule all nations. And it ties this individual with this, what would seem like an obscure reference to a donkey tied to a vine, a colt. And yet here's Jesus choosing that exact image, a donkey, as his transportation to arrive in Jerusalem. We also see uh, much later on, the prophet Zechariah made this significant promise in Zechariah 9.9. He says this of the coming king. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey and the image here is of the king of israel coming into jerusalem as a victorious king and where you'd think he'd be riding this really strong and powerful and well-decorated horse no he's riding on very humble transportation the back of a donkey in fact a colt and so the significance of this is not missed by those in attendance. In fact, here's my other point that I think is important for us to recognize here is that Jesus is the one who orchestrated his entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It was him who sent his disciples to claim the donkey. It was him who chose to take that as his transportation to Jerusalem, this was not an arbitrary choice. In fact, we don't see Jesus riding on the back of a donkey anywhere else in the Gospels. Why did he choose that? Because Jesus himself was making a claim to be the long-awaited Messiah, to be the king that Israel has been promised throughout its entire history. God's promise fulfilled in him. So here's what I want to look at as we think about this whole issue of who is Jesus. 
And why were the crowds welcoming him in such a way? And where did they go? In just a short few days later, I want to take a look at this through this paradigm, who they thought he was and who he actually was. Do those two things go together? Are those things apart? We're going to take a look at that together. So let's start with this, who they thought that Jesus was. And when I say they, the crowds around who were making these exclamations, who were laying down palm branches as Jesus was arriving on a donkey, who did they think he was? And so we see the following, that they spread their cloaks on the road before him. Verse 8. I don't know about you, but we don't often do this. We don't lay out the red carpet. We don't lay our coats down uh, for many people. This was obviously a sign of respect, uh, a sign of high honor, and we see the people doing this. We see that they spread palm branches on the road before him. Verse 8, we're going to take a look in just a moment at the significance of the laying down of these palm branches before Jesus as he arrived. We see that they shouted, Hosanna, which means save. And so in some way, they anticipated, they expected, they were crying out to Jesus as he arrived for them to save. Now the question might be, save from what? You know, Jesus came, we know, to save from sins. What what other way did he come to save? And so here we have the nation of Israel, God's holy people who have been given this land of Israel. And for a long time, for centuries and centuries at this point, Israel has been dominated by one world power or another. And at the moment of Jesus's arrival, they stand under the power of the Roman Empire. In fact, there are Roman garrisons stationed around their temple in their most holy city, Jerusalem. They are being taxed by this foreign people and in many ways are largely oppressed. And as they call out to Jesus, Hosanna, they're asking for for salvation. They shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Among other things, recognizing the fact that Jesus was sent by God. They shouted, we see in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And so certainly they had expectations of what Jesus would do now that he has arrived here in Jerusalem. So let's take a look at what might be driving some of these things that they're expecting as Jesus is arriving here in Jerusalem. And so first, let's start with this. The palm branches are kind of what this day is known for, is it not? There was, there, was a, there, was a, there was an urgency in Darlene's voice about getting these palm branches done yesterday so that they were here in preparation for today because when we think about his arrival in Jerusalem, this is what we picture because they were cutting down and laying down palm branches to line the road in front of Jesus as he came. And as cool as that sounds, as beautiful as that image is, that was not some random arbitrary decision somebody had you know, hey, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do this. Clearly, it must have some kind of significance, something from their history, some meaning that they are also now applying to Jesus. So what is it? Well, we actually know from one of the Jewish historical books, First Maccabees, one of the books written about Jewish history between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we know what's happening. In fact, the Jewish people, all of Israel, was being oppressed by foreign Greek kings. 
And it started with one in particular, um, and Antiochus, Antiochus IV, and what he wanted the Jewish people to do was to give up their ways and adopt the Greek ways. They wanted them to give up the belief in the Torah, the circumcision of their children, the, the kosher guidelines by which they chose what to eat. And in fact, in every single way, they wanted them to stop being distinct from all the people that they ruled and instead to worship like they did and like everybody else in their kingdom did. This was a form of control. And this caused, as you can imagine, conflict between the Jewish people who were under oppression and these Greek lords that were coming in to impose their will, and Israel fought back. And here's something we read. Jerusalem was captured. Jerusalem was overrun. Even the temple was destroyed. And there's a reclaiming, if you will, by these Jewish heroes as they're fighting for their independence from Greece. And here's what we read. What account in their history from 1 Maccabees 13, 49 to 53. You'll have to listen closely. I apologize. It's not on the screen for you. Here's what it says. Those who were in the citadel of Jerusalem were prevented from going in and out to buy and sell in the country. So they were very hungry, and many of them perished from famine. Then they cried to Simon to make peace with them, and he did so. But he expelled them from there and cleansed the citadel from its pollutions. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. He strengthened the fortifications of the Temple Hill alongside the citadel and he and his men lived there. Simon saw that his son John had reached manhood and so he made him commander of all the forces and he lived at Gazara. What do we see here? We see one that was named a king in Israel, a leader, a ruler over Israel who was victorious in fighting back the oppression of these foreign people and reclaiming Jerusalem, their holy city, and getting rid of all that polluted it and bringing freedom to the people. And how did they honor him? How did they celebrate this victory with song, with dance, and with lining the streets with palm branches as he came. I want you to picture just this for just a moment. What do you think, knowing what was going on in Israel 2,000 years ago, what do you think they were celebrating with palm branches as Jesus came to Jerusalem? That just like Simon and his family led the Israelites in ousting the Greeks and establishing Jewish independence, Jewish autonomy again in Jerusalem, perhaps this Jesus was coming to get rid of the Romans and to set up Jewish independence, Jewish autonomy again in Jerusalem. Who did they think Jesus was? They also thought he was the king who would reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. This one's from scripture. In fact, the same passage we started with, it's Zechariah 9.9. Here's how that passage continues. So I want to start again with Zechariah 9.9, and here's the following verses. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from, river, uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. What is God promising through the prophet Zechariah here? In the same passage that instructs Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the subsequent verses paint a picture of one who will come in the line of David to be victorious against the nations and to establish a reign of peace from David's throne in Jerusalem. And as Jesus came on the back of a donkey, this is exactly who they figured him to be. Mark 11.10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They thought this was the day. Right before Passover, in Jerusalem, in their own time, the Messiah has come to kick these Romans out of Israel and to establish God's messianic kingdom upon the earth. This is what they were crying out for. This is who they thought Jesus was. This is what they thought he was going to do. In fact, this wasn't just those ignorant Jewish people out there who didn't know any better. Meanwhile, Jesus' inner circle, the apostles, the rest of his disciples, they knew. In fact, Jesus' disciples were just as clueless on this point. We see this uh, in several different places, but here's two. When Jesus had died, been buried, rose again from the dead, and as he was starting to appear before people, he came across a group of his disciples who were leaving Jerusalem, and they were on, their, were on the road on the way to Emmaus, and they are just saddened by what had taken place. And Jesus comes along unbeknownst to them, and here's what happens in Luke 24, 13 through 21. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. They knew he was the Messiah, but that came packaged with so much expectation, so many blinding assumptions about what he would do, that when Jesus didn't conquer the Romans, but instead was killed by the Romans, they were downcast. And now they didn't see him as Messiah, but considered him a prophet. They had hoped. 
that he was going to be the one. Perhaps they have to look for another. Later on, right before Jesus is, I love this because Jesus has now been with them for a period of 40 days. He's been appearing. He's been teaching about the kingdom. And yet here's his final dialogue with his disciples before he ascends to the Father. And we see this stupid moment in Acts 1, 6 through 8. Now, I don't want to sound judgmental on them because I'll tell you right now, if I was alive 2,000 years ago, I'd be the idiot who asked this question. But here's what it says in Acts 1, 6 through 8. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's happening here? Okay, Jesus, we get it. You died and you rose again, and that's really cool. We thank you for teaching us about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, but before you go, can you kick out the Romans and set up our, your kingdom here? They didn't get it. They still thought this was his priority, and they were wondering, um, time's running short here, Jesus. What's going to happen? And this is what the people in the crowds wondered too about Jesus as he comes as the Davidic king. But here's something really cool, something that maybe you don't already know, something you might not have heard. But there was a great amount of, of apocalyptic expectation, of expectation of the end times to come. You think that's a new thing? That's not a new thing. In Jesus's day, there was a huge amount of anticipation of God coming and making all things right. They believed that Jesus coming on the back of the donkey was not just the coming of the kingdom on the earth, but the very coming of the end times when God will come and God will redeem Israel. This is that same Zechariah 9 passage, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine, and they will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the quarters of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. They are not just looking forward to the end of the Romans. They're not just looking forward to the restoration of that Davidic line of kings in Israel. They are looking forward to God making all things right for the righteous. In this time, again, there was a tremendous amount of apocalyptic expectation. In fact, many of the writings of this period, the couple hundred years leading up to the time of Christ, focus in on the end times, when the Messiah will come, when God himself will come, when Israel's enemies would be defeated once and for all, when the righteous will be redeemed. And in fact, people would come from all quarters of the world to worship God in Jerusalem, not just Jews, but all nations. And we soon see the fallout of these presuppositions of what Jesus was going to do, who Jesus was, 
just a few days later. The people, these crowds that are worshiping him, celebrating him, honoring him as he comes, had their own presuppositions, their blinding assumptions. And because of that, we see that many abandoned their celebration of him when he was rejected by their Jewish leaders and when he was turned over to the Romans. We see even one of his 12, one of the apostles, one of his closest, his, his closest leaders, friends, peers, colleagues, co-workers, whatever you want to put there, Judas Iscariot. And we know that Judas betrayed Jesus and he sold him out to the Jewish religious leaders for a small amount of money. And it makes you wonder what on earth could have possessed Judas after walking with Jesus all this time, seeing what he saw right before him. How could he sell Jesus out? And it has to be. So many have suggested this. The only rational thing I could think of is that in his mind, Judas knew what the Messiah was going to do. And when Jesus started talking about, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders, I'm going to go to my death, he's sitting here thinking, this can't be the Messiah. This isn't what I signed up for. Certainly, this isn't what God has sent us, a Messiah that's going to die. What about our freedom? What about the Romans? And again, after Jesus' death, his followers scattered. They hid, they doubted. And even when the gospel was going forth after Jesus' resurrection, Paul and others continued to engage with these Jewish presuppositions, these blinding assumptions about the Messiah that were roadblocks, obstacles to them hearing and responding to the good news of the gospel. That's, that's who they thought he was, or at least what they thought he was going to do when he came 2,000 years ago. But who was he actually? What did he intend to do? What did the scriptures say he would do? when he came, when he did. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament a God who was pierced, a God who was killed by his own people. In the same book that promised that this triumphant king would come on a donkey, the same one that said he would rule on David's throne over his enemies, the same one who said he would usher in God visiting the earth and rescuing the righteous, and in the end times, that same Zechariah, just three chapters later, says this in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. At the end, there will come this recognition that it was God himself who they pierced. And that word used for pierced literally means pierced, stabbed, killed. And in this text, we see this interesting twist. God says they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Jesus coming as God himself. He 
was pierced. And there will be a recognition and a mourning of this when God reconciles the Jewish people to himself at the end times. Who was Jesus? He was God who was pierced, who was killed by his own people, prophesied long before these events played out. He's also the one who died as a guilt offering for the people. Josh, for the sake of time, I'm skipping to chapter 53, verse 1, so forgive me for skipping some of your slides there. But here's what it says in this passage. Um, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And here's what it says about this man who would come. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. It was numbered with the transgressors, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I want to give you just a couple really cool things here. Do you know that there was a time in history not that long ago, maybe a little over 100 years, when, sounds like a long time to us, but it's not that long ago, when skeptics of Christianity just assumed that that passage in Isaiah in the Old Testament was written by Christians and somehow inserted into the Jewish Bible. It so clearly and vividly depicts Jesus, what the New Testament says he did, that he was willing to die as a a guilt offering for the people, and that he was raised to new life, that somehow his death made atonement for the people. All these different elements that we see so clearly here might as well be in the New Testament. And they thought there's absolutely no way that before Jesus came and did what he did, that this was in the Bible. And then we have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the Jewish scrolls from Qumran, which predate Jesus, and all archaeologists say the same thing. And here's this scroll of Isaiah, 
And in it, Isaiah 53, and these beautiful promises of one who would come, we found them preserved from a time before Jesus. And here comes Jesus, the fulfillment of these very things. Who did they think Jesus was? This conquering king who was going to come and overthrow the Romans and set up Jewish autonomy. Who was Jesus? What was his purpose in coming the first time to Jerusalem? To die as a guilt offering so that the sins of the people that they couldn't pay for themselves were paid for in full by him. And by his death, many are justified. Many stand right before God, not because of their goodness. The passage makes very clear they're sinners, but by his sacrifice. This is the gospel. That's from the Old Testament. And this is why he came. So what is the significance of it all? You know, many of the presuppositions that were held about Jesus, they were true. I want to stop for a second. Those things they thought about Jesus, those things they thought he was going to do, those, those functions of the king who comes in the line of David, they were not wrong to think these things, but they had only a part of the truth. They were missing something significant that their scriptures promised about the one who was going to come. They had the truth in part. And so many of the things they believed were true, but they were only part of the truth. Because Jesus is the king in the line of David. And one day he will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom on David's throne in Jerusalem. And he will rule over the nations from there. And God did come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus comes again, he will bring with him the end times, the apocalypse, uh, the restoration of Israel, the redemption of the righteous, those things they looked forward to so desperately at that time. Jesus will be the one to usher that in when he comes again. And yes, in fact, it says that people from all nations will come and worship God there. But for that future hope to be a reality, for that future hope to even be possible, Jesus had to first make atonement once for all for those who would be among the righteous who will be redeemed when he comes again. After all, not one person is good enough. Not one person is righteous of their own accord. Everyone is born in sin and everyone adds to their guilt all the time. No one was capable of keeping the law, not the Jewish people who were in covenant with God and not those from the outside either. God had to first make a way of dealing with sin so that there could be citizens in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness when Jesus returns. And Easter season is a recognition of what God did to secure our present and our future salvation that we might be justified on account of Christ's death and his resurrection. And that one day we will be among the righteous when God comes in his fullness with his kingdom. Now, I don't like referring to Jesus's coming into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago as his triumphal entry. I know that, that if you're having, if you have an NIV Bible, in fact, I think maybe most of your translations Right over that section, Mark 11, 1 through 11, and the corresponding passages, it'll say the triumphal entry. I don't like referring to it as the triumphal entry. That event is probably better understood as the king's sacrifice of himself out of love for his subjects. But I will tell you this, that Jesus will have a triumphal entry. Jesus will, in fact, come in glory as the king worthy 
of worship, the one who comes in glory, in power, to destroy his enemies, to redeem the righteous, and to establish his kingdom on earth. That day is coming, my friends. And as we look back in the past to see what God has done, those things that secure our salvation in Christ now, even greater, it points forward to the inheritance that we will have in Christ because of what he has done. We have so much to look forward to.